Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Eric Daimler. He's a six-time entrepreneur, investor, founder, and CEO of Conexus, and a former Presidential Innovation Fellow for AI and Robotics under the Obama administration. Eric takes us through what AI really is. He provides a glimpse into his world where he and his team are tackling highly complex data problems by applying mathematics and computer science. If you're not really interested in technology or artificial intelligence, I still urge you to listen to this podcast, as Eric's enthusiasm and ability to simplify make this a really enjoyable interview. Among a number of things, we discuss the highly topical chat GPT. We discuss what it is, how it's actually doing what it's doing, and I couldn't resist but asking if this kind of AI could be dangerous to us as humans. His response and our discussion debunk the fears and will likely act to increase your acceptance of the artificial intelligence in our daily lives. I usually do like to discuss topics of finance, but before you knew it, our time was up. This was a great interview. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Now, enjoy the show. Eric, welcome to the show. Good to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation as the research I've done, a bit of your background just really struck me as being quite fascinating, your, your experience in technology with AI, with building businesses, a lot to get into, but the best way for us to start is to get a bit of a, a background in yourself and your career. So if you don't mind, I'll pass it over to you. Sure. If people know me, they may know me because I was AI authority, I guess a first AI authority in the White House starting during the Obama administration. But I really spent 30 plus years in and around artificial intelligence in various capacities. I started off as a researcher at Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, uh, University of Washington, Seattle. Also been a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road. I've started a number of, of companies, all generally in sophisticated technical spaces in this area. And then finally, in public policy. So researcher, entrepreneur, investor, and in policy. I, I've seen a lot uh, around AI over many years. What took you into the world of AI and, and how has it developed over the last 30 years? Because it really feels like it's this, we could be on this exponential growth curve, but where was it 30 years ago, 20 and 10 and now? Yeah, it's pretty funny. The nature of digital experiences is that they can sneak up on you. I mean, that's the dynamic is it feels like it's moving fast, but really the characteristic is that it's abrupt. You know, digital technologies don't work, they don't work, they don't work, and then they work. And they work infinitely well as soon as they work. And so ChatGPT, which is kind of trendy right now, it occurs like it came out of nowhere. But this is this sort of thing has been, been in the works for quite some time. It is a very sophisticated application of these large language models and, and done at scale, which is deserving of all credit to the, to the management team and the technical team at OpenAI. But 
it's been going on for quite a while. So the history suggests that it got started in 1956. That's how the mythology got started. Yeah, long, a long time ago, I know. And yeah. you know, another way of, of thinking about it, because that, that's so far back, it can be an abstraction. We can think of autonomous cars that also, to some extent, occurred like they just suddenly came on the scene. So it can offer your, your listeners a little thought experiment. You just put in your mind, uh, when, when do you think uh, the first autonomous car was driving on North American public roads? So a car driving by itself can stop at a stop sign detect a stoplight, detect pedestrians with no one touching the steering wheel. Like you think about when you think that first occurred, 2010, 2005, 2000, you know, you just think about what that date is. Hmm. The answer is 1983. Really? Yeah. And no, it, it was a van you know, filled, filled with probably more computers than, than the entire developing world had at the time. And the whole thing went only five miles per hour. But you know, it was you know sunny and it was clear and it was dry. But you know this technology has been going on for a while. It takes quite some time to develop into a level of maturity that can then find a commercial application. Coming to today in 2023, we can look with some amount of cynicism of uh, Elon Musk's pronouncements that you know pretty much every year since. 2013 that he thought well, next year we're going to have fully autonomous driving. You know, you can have a cynical view on it, but you know, maybe if you were generous, you could say that he genuinely had expectations of the technology maturing in a very short period of time based on the appearance of these developments occurring recently. But in reality, a lot of these things have been gaining momentum and as the nature of the digital innovations occur, kind of building upon each other year over year. Wow, it's I really like your point that technology and the proliferation of it is very abrupt. And that's kind of how I think when all of us look back, the the adoption, you got your early adopters, but when it's adopted, it's adopted fast. And, you know, you see a lot of displacement, Blackberries to iPhone kind of thing and, and so on and chat GPT. I am curious about talking about your current company, Connexus, but I do want to, before we jump in there, just go down a bit further about something that is very topical, being ChatGPT and Bard and, and you know these other platforms that are out there. They seem, well, they're fascinating, but there's something that you, you touched on, which I thought was interesting. And I want to, just for my own intellectual education here, of, you speak about the platform, the language models, and then the ability to do that at scale. So from a technical mindset, how do you see what's happening there or what what is really interesting to you aside from the just the user application? Yeah, well, it's interesting that OpenAI took one vector, just the intake of data and went wild with that. You know, they went to the extremes and no one really had had, had thought of that but that before. You know, there's a lot of different ways of working with a large language model. I had worked on this as a researcher maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, and, and we study the, the the syntax and the semantics and try applying that to what what is the intention of of people as they speak. Uh, and so we were we were doing it in these iterative studies of what do people intend, what's the reaction for people. We would do them in groupings to say when Eric says. Uh, hello, what are the words around the hello that, that tend to occur? When Eric uh, gives a, a sentence of good morning, what, what tends to be the response and what are the circumstances under, under that response? The applications that I had studied 
were military, of course, that's where the funding often comes from in the United States. So we we did it to detect behaviors in terrorist networks, uh, but then we applied it to corporate malfeasance. And then we started a business that worked to predict the behavior of central banks based on how people spoke publicly. And those all had some degree of efficacy. It was, it was really quite fascinating. But what OpenAI did is they said, the better the intake of the language, the better the output will be. Nobody had thought about that before. You know, first of all, because it takes a lot of money and relatedly, but you know, distinct is it takes a lot of electricity. The right. joke is that if, you, if you have a billion dollars and the, and the energy capacity of Ecuador, then you can duplicate what OpenAI did. But that's uh, you know, a testament to uh, the vision of its founders and of the technical team. They picked a very good path, uh, uh, kind of manifestly. Interesting. Yeah. You got to think about the, I mean, just the energy usage alone for the billions and potentially, like I would assume maybe even trillions of data points that it's got to be referencing. And then when I think about, and I'm so far from a technical guy, but I think about technical conversations I've had before with my developing friends and uh, or developer friends and the ability to go and, and for hundreds of thousands, millions of people to go and type in these queries at one time and it for, for it to be able to respond and, and as it does, how is that built and what is going on behind the scenes? Well, the way you can describe it to someone that's unfamiliar with these sort of technologies is that it's just a very, very sophisticated autocomplete. Some people try saying that it's something more than that, but I think that's a really good descriptor. You don't want to minimize it by saying it's just an autocomplete. It's it's a massively sophisticated autocomplete. We really should be surprised if it didn't produce some fantastic results because it has consumed something on the order of 80% of the English language corpus. I mean, like if it wow. didn't do something based on that large language intake, you got to think something's wrong. So they were intelligent by saying, hey, we have some technologists that can do something with this language, large language model, if we just bring in more data. And so they added some understanding of semantics, understanding of syntax, understand, understanding of pragmatics, the, the kind of the intent of language, in addition to the underlying technical infrastructure just to support uh, something of that size and the serving of it back to consumers. Wow. Okay. There's there's a lot there, man. Thanks for opening my eyes to it. <laughs> and like pretty tangent there for sure. Um, when when looking at other areas of AI and, and business development, where business is going, one of the things you, you've now co-founder or founder to is Conexus, which you've been able to land some very big names. And I... I read a bit of about an, like a case study on Uber and learned that city by city, that company was going and saying, everybody has their own autonomy to build the, the data structures they need. And if I'm not mistaken, and what came from that was huge amounts of data, but no way to connect them between. And Conexus has, has become a tool to do that. What was the process of building this company? And and where are you going with it? Yeah, I, I, I guess I could start with a with a thesis that I have that is the foundation for all the what the six companies that I've founded or co-founded, and it's that the less sexy the company, the more money there is to be made. 
know, okay. I, yeah. You know, it's, I, I'll, I'll say my then the, kind of an adjunct to this, I don't feel quite as strongly about it, which is, you know, the reason often sexy companies are kind of less financially viable is because they attract competition. And so if you, you have 10 companies then competing for one space, it's going to drag down your returns. If for nothing, no other reason than it confuses the market, because you'll have nine other people telling a story that might sound similar to yours, even if yours is the, the best one available. So I have generally started with the foundation that is unique or extremely rare. And that's what we did here. Conexus is the result of uh, tens of millions invested from research that then spun out after many years of development out of MIT to have the Institute tell it it's the first ever spin out of their math department. Now, that, that's a little crazy. And it's a, it has proven to be both a blessing and a curse. The curse is that there's a reason they don't spin out of math, which is you have something breathtakingly abstract. The blessing is you also have something breathtakingly powerful because it's foundational. You know, it's the law of nature. It's math. Where we saw this going initially was the addressing of the impairment for the largest deployments of artificial intelligence. You know, I had a privileged position being in the White House at the time around this research was getting funded by both the Department of Commerce and the Department of Defense in the United States. I saw this as a as a pathway to solving the supply chain problems way before they became evident as a difficulty during COVID and of this large and increasing problem of bringing knowledge together for the solving of complex operational problems in life and death circumstances. And so Conexus came out of MIT, is that what I'm, what I'm hearing there? And, uh, and it isn't sexy, but it's really cool, in my opinion. Maybe in a nerdy <laughs> it's nerd way. sexy. Yeah, nerd, 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 I, I like it. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not good. It's a little harder to capture the public imagination in the way that ChatGPT does. So I definitely have a little bit of, uh, of sexy tech envy with the, the CTO at OpenAI, she, who's lovely, by the way. She's, she's a completely lovely person, and she, uh, you know, she's only a, a few miles away from me here in San Francisco. Where we're going with this technology is in bringing uh, data together. Just a simple use case. This isn't what we do necessarily as a product, but all of us have likely had the experience of, of calling up, say, a credit card company when it wants to ask automated question, enter your credit card number. And then you get transferred to another part of the organization and they say, oh, hey, can you give me your number again? And you're thinking, wait, isn't this the same company? Didn't I just give you the number? Why am I giving you the number again? Now, you know, they'll say it is for security, but really it's because the systems don't talk to each other. And that's how it happens. Databases don't like to talk to each other. You know, in the United States, we have this problem in healthcare all the time where we have to repeatedly fill out forms that you think, I'm sorry, wasn't this the same form that I filled out in the same organization weeks ago or maybe yesterday. And it, it's just quite funny. Databases don't talk to each other. You know, and this, this impairs the use of data. Gartner calls this dark data, where everybody seems to have gotten the memo that data is the new oil and all that. So at the board level, there's directives for people to have acquired more and more data. And that's happening. The storage of which is probably expressed in many of the, the bills for, for cloud services. But the use of that data, the use of that data is underwhelming. And, and sometimes it, it, it uh, actively impairs the efficacy of a company. So we have a client that is a major financial services firm uh, uh, globally. They, they say that they collect all this data for risk management 
that can't be used, or at least it's difficult and expensive to use. So they end up doing the proverbial looking for the key where your light is. You know, they'll do risk management based on the data that's available to them easily, not the totality of the data that's in the organization. This is an issue of these databases just not being easily available. So what Connexus does is bring that data to the fore in a way that is fast and provably complete. Hmm. Really interesting. And then what do you do with the data then? And I mean, I think that the high levels, you can, you know, make better decisions, you can figure different things out. But in between having the data, having it available to you, and then making better decisions, I think there's a, there's somewhere in that sandwich of, of figuring out kind of what kind of connections can be made from the information that's there. And how do you view that? How do you see the potential coming out of stacks of, of data points. You know, we can talk about this in a couple of ways. It may be helpful at this point to, to give a, an overview of, of how useful definition of AI can be represented. The canonical definition is it's something that senses, plans, acts, and then learns from the experience. So to, one way of answering your question is in the framework of an autonomous car that has sensors all around the car and will collect the data coming in from those sensors. You know, those will come from a, through a network to, to ultimately to a processor that then plans about what to do. It's interpreting uh, the data. So the car is going down the road. It collects data that then it might interpret as a possible crosswalk and a possible crosswalk that then might have a possible person on it. The algorithms will then have to decide, uh, is this a, uh, a person or a shadow? And then act on that. Do I slow down? Do I stop? Do I alert the driver? Or do I just keep on going, rolling through the, the sidewalk at speed? Then it learns from that experience. And this is what distinguishes a, a learning algorithm from your just ordinary thermostat, uh, which is it learns from the experience. It says, okay, I saw this crosswalk last time, uh, and now I see the shadows a little bit different. I can use that information to better express my decisions in this particular environment where the light is slightly different, the circumstances are slightly different. I could say a lot more about that, about synthetic data creation and so forth, but uh, that's where learning takes place. You know, the, the cars aren't going to spontaneously learn French. You know, they're going to, they, they learn only about the crosswalk, uh, you know, and other sort of lighting objects. So if we yeah. take that back then to an organization or a complex organization, we can say that the businesses have more and more sophisticated business rules. So Delta Airlines knows about Eric's behavior around flights. Delta Airlines knows my age and probably has a sense of my income. They may know my height even, you know, but that's all kind of data as a commodity. That's not interesting. What's more interesting for Delta yeah. Airlines is they collected this data and they say, oh, you know, I know that Eric flies on Tuesdays from uh, SFO to JFK with some frequency. And, you know, Eric deserves a little love. So we're going to offer him this extra feature, uh, you know, some credit or maybe, an, uh, you know, an upgrade or uh, campaign, some, some sort of benefit. You know, that sort of knowledge about my behavior and a way to influence that knowledge is Delta taking this commodity data and then learning and testing based on their, their view of the world. You know, that's how to be using these learning algorithms. You, you constantly test. That's a low stakes example. A higher stakes example is one we have with a client that's in energy. So it's a very large energy company in the world. What they do is they have these models 
for windmills. And, and so they, uh, there's five windmill manufacturers in the world. And, you know, as much as we might all prefer to have clean energy, you know, we mostly want like a cold beer when, when we have a cold beer and a, you know, <laughs> hot, and a hot meal, right? Just give us the, the electricity. But the power company has to manage these five windmills, let alone all the other sources of energy. Unfortunately, all of those windmills individually had, by manufacturer has a separate database for how the windmills are deployed based on the topology of an area, how they're maintained, and then how they're operated day to day based on the wind. How do they how do they express themselves relative to the other windmills around the geography? Those are operationally complex, and it's not just three times five databases. It's it's actually an exponential number of connections between all of those databases. That becomes a problem. And so how these companies manage, how this power company manages this, this issue today is manually. They you know, iterate on this planning, often in Excel, kind of embarrassingly often in Excel, <laughs> you know, how they're going to plan the deployment, the operations and the maintenance of these windmills. It's really difficult to reason about all the possible connections between these databases. And so you can continually do that manually, and that's how this is done today. But what, what Connexus brings is Connexus brings an AI that can reason about the, the totality of the comprehensive connections between all of these databases to make the deployment, operation, and maintenance of these windmills, and therefore that power company, orders of magnitude more efficient. Wow. Too many questions are coming to my head. When you look at, at windmills or wind turbines and you have the expression of, of how they react in in kind of the, the, the formation they are with other windmills. How do you turn that from what is something we can see and feel and hear the wind and turn it into a data point and turn it into effectively mathematics? Take me into your head that way. I'm really interested. It's really helpful to know, you know, the, the AI isn't magic. It really has to intake the expertise of those familiar with these dynamics. I am in some way, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm not an expert in energy. I'm not an expert in medicine. I'm not an expert in aerospace engineering. Uh, so I don't know any of that. And the AI can't infer what these models of a wing should be. You have to rely on the subject matter experts to take implicit knowledge out of their heads and make that explicit. So in the, in the example of a, of a windmill, it's the same thing in, as an airplane wing. They'll have this variable called vibration. The engineer that has to analyze that windmill or that wing has to represent formally. Informally just means you have to put it in an equation. Don't put it in English or French or, or what have you. Put it in math. What vibration means what is the model? What is the mathematical equation? It could be in Excel, it could be an Oracle, but it's often in Excel. But in any case, it has to be in a formula. What is the model of operation of the windmill represented in a formula? And how does vibration relate? Then I can look at that formula and that characteristic of vibration, and I can compose it with the other windmills and see whether that vibration cancels each other out or it's additive or, or what have you. So these sort of critical uh, pieces of infrastructure. The world over time becomes more formal. This is just what happens. You know, expertise becomes more precise, uh, and that expresses itself 
in in one way of characterizing it is deeper knowledge, but how it manifests is is in more specific knowledge that then become can become represented in formulas. That's what happens. And as we learn things, we'll learn it with a, a depth that eventually can be represented in these formulas, and then that can be automated. And, that, and that's what I encourage everybody to participate in, is participate in that series of steps to then automate their own jobs. Uh, if you participate in that, then you can participate in the deployment of AI. If you, if you ignore that, then you are going to be at the effect of the deployment of AI. That's a much less comfortable place to be. Yeah, let's talk about that. That was a where, where I was wanted to go next was how do we, to your point, participate or how do we manage the the use of AI? And and let's let's put this in the context of organizations and thinking from a management level. If we think that AI is is not going to help us, we're going to be out of jobs. If we think, hey, we need to use AI, but don't know where to turn, that's what I'm curious about. So how do you participate in the use of AI? I am excited that we can see this right now with ChatGPT. I don't think we're leaning on this too heavily to say that it's done an amazing service to all of us by making visible a really, I'm going to say humanizing, but but like a accessible, maybe is a better word, vision of what AI means in our world. When I was in government, I was really working my hardest to bring a broader section of the population into the conversation about AI. That's really difficult, but, but it's necessary because otherwise, you know, nerds like me who grew up in a basement with computers and, and wanted to, would, would be really happy, and it's quite literal, happy optimizing the performance of my video card for the for my video games. I would just continue to do that. And, and now in a, as a business person doing that, you know, just for my quarterly objectives about the development of my product, that's dangerous not just for society, but it's dangerous because we all have our own little myopia, our own little bubbles. And I want other people to give feedback because otherwise I have a risk of deploying my software and having it be resisted. I want it to be embraced. So I need a richer set of uh, of feedback to be given. Microsoft and OpenAI deserve a lot of credit because they released some of these features in some ways in an open environment, but at least in their chat function in a little in a controlled environment and it's since restricted it based on feedback. It's, it's opened up the public imagination in any case to how we can be using AI in our jobs. It certainly started the conversation, but people are now exploring how can chat GPT affect my job. It brings home the point that I, I've been trying to make in innumerable different ways over the past decade, but but now is so much easier, which is you're not going to get replaced with a computer. You're going to get replaced with a human using a computer. Right. Yeah, that's such a such a point. Eh? It's a human who knows how to interact and use these tools. It's like somebody who was stuck on a typewriter who refused to move over to a well, I guess, to a massive desktop at the time or something like this. It won't replace jobs so much as as you'll be replaced by somebody who can engage and interact with it. Just to segue, just kind of a a further on that, one of our partners, we've been working on some AI applications with Cluding, like ChatGPT, to see what it's all about. He's a computer scientist. And I've been really interested to see how he interacts with it because he's been sending me the conversations back and forth. And the way he kind of speaks to it and provides the data he wants. It's just like, wow, it's an interesting kind of 
exploration into how to use these tools. I want to ask a question next about, you mentioned the headlines, chat GPT. And I believe it was, you know, OpenAI had, um, they opened it up to, to a series of journalists and there's been a, a number of headlines that have come back with some conversations, which you could say went a little bit sideways and felt rather uncomfortable. I'm not sure if, you, if you've seen any of these, but the point being is that it drives that conversation again of, will AI become sentient? And is there a danger to humans? What's your take on this? Yeah, I'll start with that last little point. You know, the danger to humans is they just misinterpret what's going on. One of the scariest comments I got was someone empathizing with the robot that they were being bullied. And I thought, I thought wow, that is, that is off the mark. These are not sentient beings. They don't have feelings. So that is super dangerous. Now, whether that person's tired, jet lagged, which, which I often am, or what they genuinely think that that sort of misinterpretation of what's going on is uh, potentially frightening, especially when we live in an age already trying to deal with misinformation. You know, if we now somehow think that these computers are possessing uh, some sort of feeling or some, some sort of knowledge beyond what we've already fed them, we have something else to watch out for in addition to misinformation or, you know, it's misinformation in a compounded way. We at Conexus are working to address this in a medical domain. One of my, me and my co-founders had been, I'd say, frightened or concerned with this idea that people soon would take chat GPT and direct it inward or direct it back at their own corporate data. The, there's a big problem with that because you know, ChatGPT, as we saw with you know, Kevin Reese at the New York Times exercise in that chat sequence that resulted in the computer seeming to express emotions, is that these aren't truths. These are just you know, manifestations of, like I say, the, the, the simplistic way of saying is an autocomplete. You don't want to send an autocomplete on your own corporate data, especially in, in applications that are life critical. And that's the, the rule to have about ChatGPT is the results could be fed truth, 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 and truth, but it doesn't mean the output will be truth. You know, ChatGPT said, said crudely, you know, ChatGPT can lie to you. Right? And you don't say it's sentient, please. You know, don't try to anthropomorphize it. It's not a human. It's not even sentient. These are computers. So we just need to be interacting with them like that. And what, so when we take these models and then direct them at our life critical operations, we need to be super careful about how we do that so that we can trust the underlying solidity, the underlying integrity of these models. So coming back to Connexus, what, what Connexus do, is working on with some clients is making sure in a medical context that when we direct this data internally to clinical decisions, that citations of drugs, for example, or recommendations of treatments has a lineage and a provenance that can be proven down to the level of math, you know, proving the, uh, the connections that were already in evidence and can be validated by humans, by, by people trained in the, in the art, you know, physicians, clinicians of any, of any background, I suppose, in that case. That's where we need to go for those applications. Uh, and that's, that's the important sensibility, I'll say, to bring to our use of these large language models. Fascinating. I think it's, it's 
talking about how AIs, in the, in the case of ChatGPT, not having feelings and can just basically lie to us by telling us, you know, giving us back what it's just searching out there. And then us all of a sudden being concerned that it has feelings and being, uh, it's compounding itself in a sense. So interesting. I'm curious about, uh, I put a question down here about Web 3.0, tons of hype around that. You know, people throw it around like we all know what we're talking about. And then the spatial web. What are your what are your impressions of of uh, of those? Yeah, I, uh, I I think the idea of having more uh, participation uh, on the web. I'll just say that as a as a way a type of overlay in Web three is is fantastic to be able to sort of democratize the efforts to democratize uh, many of the, the the uses that we currently get from a Web two framework are are terrific. It's not where I spend my time. That's more consumer facing. And so it's not where our, our research has taken us. And it's not where uh, some of our large organizations have spent time. But it is probably a more interesting place to play than, uh, than many of the things that I've heard about the blockchain, for example. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then any ideas, any, do you have any perspectives on, on the spatial web? It's something that I've just been becoming aware of and, and I think it's quite a fascinating concept. A- have you ever done any work in and around there? What we work in is learning algorithms, whether they are probabilistic or deterministic learning algorithms. And we apply that to very sophisticated applications in the operations of organizations. That's, that's where we are uh, focused in these life-critical circumstances. So in, an interesting example is quantum chemistry, where you have researchers that want to be sharing data, but don't want to have the data misinterpreted. You know, in okay. chemistry, you don't want to have H2O you know, misinterpreted as O2H. Bad things can happen in chemistry uh, when yeah, you're right. interpreting uh, research. And this really does happen for reasons we can, we can get into. That's the, the sort of life-critical circumstances that we work with in a variety of different contexts from, you know, medical research to energy production, to the construction of, of airplanes to, to make sure people and, and, and nations are safe. Excellent. Okay. I want to come back to the question of implementing AI solutions for companies, because when with Conexus and the work you do, the organizations work you work with are global in nature. They're, they're massive. Right, it's not a not a mom and pop. It's not a startup, as far as I understand, and it's not even a company that is, you know, they could be a real going concern. Hundred million in revenue. I believe that it would take big budgets to be able to work with and have massive amounts of data to be able to work with and put AI to work. How can how can the average organization start to yeah put AI to work for them? Where do they look? How do they know? I mean, it's it's the options are probably as, as vague as my question here, but I'm curious of any any guidance there on how to, to properly put these AI applications to work. Yeah, there's a, a few things to say uh, about that, but I, so I first like the frame average organization with 100 million in revenue. That, that's, a, that's an organization with a good amount of traction. True, uh, true. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. I, I can say for us, it connects us. You know, we typically work with large organizations because it's a proxy for complexity. Right. You have a really simple business or a, a, a business that is, you know, operationally 
already standardized, there's not a lot of room for AI. So an example of a place that's been standardized is an airplane schedules. So not, not scheduling of an airline, like the, the, the debacle that was created from Southwest Airlines recently, but the, you know, there's, a standard, there's a standardization represented by IATA, the, the airplane organization that handles such things. That's standardized. In finance, there's something similar in options contracts and, and some commodities contracts. Those are standardized. There's not a lot for us to say there. You know, commercial banks execute on uh, certificates of deposits and, and ordinary savings accounts in a very standardized routine way. They have systems that built over decades that are routinized in, in a way that is less interesting. But in every other area, in every other domain, uh, you know, there's a lot of space to have to have a conversation. Where companies generally want to look is not towards just the sprinkling of AI on something. The worst example, I'll give you the worst example and then the best example. You know, the worst example is to say, let's create a couple data, a whole bunch, collect a whole bunch of data, and we'll put AI on that and we'll find some correlations or, 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 put, or create some insights for us. You know, it's very 2015. That's not helpful. It, it, it's helpful if not, we don't just get insights, but we're able to more effectively operate a firm, either in the speed or, or in the scale or in the integrity with which we operate a firm. Our development path, I think, matches some other uh, companies' development paths, which is we're going to the most complex organizations first, but the pathway absolutely includes making this more available to increasingly less sophisticated or smaller uh, organizations over time. You know, for us, uh, it's just a resource allocation issue. But we, we could start with companies that have often as few as five databases. You know, kind of below that, you can often do these, these, these sort of things manually. Generally, the threshold's five, sometimes three, but often five databases where the complexity of a business begins to go beyond a, a human's ability to reason. So that's a, that's a threshold issue where you can say, well, I need an artificial intelligence like a Conexus generative AI uh, or other companies' offerings to begin to think about how to reason about this increased sophistication that I'm experiencing in my business. A framework that I find is helpful beyond that definition that I gave you about sense, plan, act, and learn from the experience is perhaps an augmentation to uh, your engagement with your job. How do you want to be augmented? You know, we're all augmented by, by the office suite of a word processor, a worksheet, sometimes something that produces slides. Right? We're, we're augmented by that little sequence. We can all think a little more clearly about then what do I want to automate from my workflow? You know, exactly what would I like to happen after I do something? So this is a little bit beyond insights. So an example that we have with an, another client is financial services client wanting to uh, create valuation models for illiquid assets. That as an example. So that's their that's the, that's this company's job. They have a func a function of, of dozens of people doing this doing this job. That job then needs to be compared to the valuation of the original investor, the portfolio manager in this case. It then needs to be validated by the investment committee. So you have other companies engaged with. Uh, this this model that this one group uh, 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 does. So that's that is a work sequence that then potentially could get automated by a generative AI like like Conexus, uh, but other other companies do this type of thing uh, as well. 
the, the automatic verification of these things in sophisticated environments like that, you know, the validation of illiquid financial assets uh, is of serious value because not only does it pr- uh, provide integrity uh, and, and build up trust with your auditors when that time comes at the end of the year, uh, but it also can speed up the ability to uh, validate uh, new investments and therefore th- your, speed up your ability to generate new investments or uh, to many other companies generate new data products and, and generate new, new uh, ways of exploring uh, how you could generate more business. Really interesting. That's, that's an example of how, how we can think about deploying AI. We can just think about what we want to automate in our process. And then you can look out for vendors that, that address those things that we want to automate in our business. Gotcha. Gotcha. I want to shift gears a bit. I'm curious about, about yourself. You, you do a lot of frequent speaking. And I'm curious about how that's benefited or impacted you both personally and professionally. It's, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing to get on stage and share with people. So what's that been for you? I really think that where I can be providing value in the world is doing what I can to bring more people into the conversation. I think the degree to which these technologies play into some Hollywood dystopia uh, or fulfill some beautiful utopia of is up to us. Uh, and, and I think many of these technologies can be life-changing, and, and certainly they can be life-enhancing in allowing us to do jobs that are more of an expression of who we are. Uh, we can we can emphasize our own empathy instead of just doing this routine mechanical work where we're just repeating things over and over. I think that's what's available in the development of these technologies. They can be quite liberating. And that autonomy that maybe is available is often suggested to increase happiness in one's job. I want people to be part of this conversation so they can help direct the development of these technologies and fulfill on that promise. I just see myself as being possibly helpful in uh, being able to catalyze that discussion. Hmm. Interesting. And what I hear there is giving people purpose to engage with things that perhaps they don't understand. Or, you know, even when you mentioned that a desk or the, the Google suite or Microsoft is an augmentation of us, you know, some might even take offense when they first hear that. But when you think about it, yes, I've augmented my, my abilities, my, my brain through this tool that I continually use. And, or, you know, through, the the glasses you're wearing, you're you're a, a form of a cyborg in, in using a, a mechanical machine to help you see better. I think we naturally take an aversion to this, but when you start looking at it, you go, oh, I guess we're already there. So why not embrace it and find purpose in making it better? Yeah, there's a lot of things to say uh, here. There's a, a great book coming out next month uh, called The Battle for Our Brain, uh, or ba- battle, battle for the Brain. Uh, Professor at Duke, wonderful, wonderful woman. I encourage everybody to, to pick up a copy of the book. It really it talks in that book about the degree to which, among other things, <laughs> the degree to which there are two schools of thought that there are people that, that think this automation can, is inevitable and people who actually think this automation can be slowed down. I think that latter one is, it's really difficult for me to get my head around. <laughs> I, I just don't think, I don't think that this can be slowed down or stopped. I don't think it's worth really spending a lot of time on that conversation. It's that, you know, auto, continued automation is inevitable. How do we direct it to better serve our interests and make us better visions of ourselves and better expressions 
uh, of society. That is where I think is a better use of our time. I then think it's cultural. You could say it is by age or gender, but it also can be a little, some degree of social reinforcement where you know, certainly I live in Silicon Valley and uh, people are, are very uh, open to, to experimenting with technology. They can also be super critical of bad technology, but they're, you know, they're open to experimenting. That's, however, not the, the most uh, profound distinction I have found because San Francisco in that way is, or Silicon Valley in that way is like a lot of other countries, let alone other cities in North, North America. If you go to Japan, however, I would say as a generalization, uh, the Japanese have gotten comfortable with computers and, and robotics working in proximity to them to a degree that it would be breathtakingly different to most other, I would say, most other people in, in developed countries uh, more broadly. You know, they, they feel completely comfortable about robots working to take care of their, their elderly in the way that we, I don't experience uh, anywhere in any other country. So the Japanese have already culturally adapted to that that sensibility of having robots work close to them. And I think that is a sensibility we, we will all be well served to adopt because the I'm going to say the next decade is going to involve a couple of things. And I'm a little generally hesitant to offer time frames, but I'm going to say soon enough that we can we'll benefit by having some attention to it. And it's that we will have a more collaborative robots call them physical manifestations or call them software. We will have more collaborative robots around us very soon. This will, this will come at us with a speed that will quickly appear as ubiquitous. These things will be all around us. You know, in the same, in a similar way that phones now are just ubiquitous. You know, 15 years ago, they didn't really exist. But now they are everywhere and they're almost almost literally uh, attached at our hips. These sort of tools now will be our sort of personal AIs that will represent our interests in the world and be interacting with, you know, not just the cookie selections on a, on a web page, but also selecting how we want to be interacting with other tools that are asking for our participation. The, the, the better that we're able to be comfortable interacting with these things, the more comfortable we're going to be operating in in this new world. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go be a creator on TikTok, but as these these technologies emerge, such as ChatGPT, it's helpful for us to be interacting with them so that we understand their strengths and limitations and we do some contemplation about how they might apply to our day-to-day work. Hmm. Where to go from here? So much. First, I think I believe TikTok is a scam. I think it's very dangerous for those in, who are outside of the CCP. I'll hold back on going too deep there uh, unless you'd like to, to know more. But the a question that comes to mind is, and, and you're, you're a, an optimist, a technologist, a, a futurist is what I can see is what I'm learning about you. But is there a point where I don't believe we're going to slow down automation because I believe as humans, we're inherently lazy. We, we, we're not working on typewriters because there's an easier, more effective, more efficient way. And so why would we put ourselves through that pain? But in, in this advancement of, of technology that's making life easier and easier and easier and faster and faster, are we losing, are we losing purpose? And are we losing, are we losing the, the ability to have a form of difficulty within our lives? 
And, and when you have that difficulty and the ability to triumph and the ability to get over it, you, you grow as a human. But if that's quickly getting taken away by greater and greater technologies, are we running into, are we going to run into an issue where we're just, we are nothing? Yeah, I don't feel threatened by the, my calculator. My calculator can do math a lot faster than I can. Uh, and I'm really fine with that. <laughs> so <laughs> I deploy my calculator quite, quite frequently. And yet it's helpful when I know what 20% of, of you know, 120 is. And I, I can at least you know, estimate that. Practical implications in currency conversion, for example. And it's sometimes helpful when I'm thinking about how computer systems work. I, you know, in 2023, this is actually a, a shocking uh, fact, which is we found one of our clients in Europe is including us in a bid to solve what I didn't understand was even a problem in 2023, which is unit conversion. So, you know, I just described for currencies, but there's also just ways that you and I describe measurements of, of, of weight and mass, you know, imperial to metric, imperial to metric, currency conversions, date conversions. These things cost, in, in the estimate from this, this project, a couple of hundred euros a year, uh, a couple of hundred million, 100 year, million, million yeah. hundred million euros a year. That's a profound number for me. Uh, and, and these sort of ordinary technologies still need to be, ordinary limitations still need to be addressed. That's, that is helpful for all of us to reason about. So this is a way that, yes, you and I may get lazy about uh, getting sucked into a YouTube Reels or, or Instagram, and that's something to be mindful of, right? And especially, uh, you know, mindful for our children. I agree with you about TikTok and, you know, think that Instagram is kind of manifestly cancerous for, for teenage girls, especially. Those are all things for us to, to manage. But yeah, they can also be really uh, addictive in, in bad ways. In the same way that we have other bad things that we can be addicted to in the world and it kind of affect our physiology. Now, argue that the battle for your brain is, a, is, I think, is maybe the best book to address some of what you're describing. But I'll say one more little anecdote. You know, while I agree with you about TikTok, also could go further in, in my criticism of it. I, you know, I think some of the other social media companies are also, you know, detrimental to our health. And yet, and yet, I enjoyed create using ChatGPT to create a little poem about how much I like my wife, and then and then saying same thing but funnier. And then saying, hey, can you add a, a Midwestern American accent to the poem? <laughs> Those are fun. You know, these are not critical, but, you know, these are, these are uh, uh, you know, non-threatening uh, ways of, of me being poetic. So I don't have to actually write a, write a poem. <laughs> you romantic, you. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, I think what, com- what it comes down to then is a degree of, of everything in moderation and, and recognizing the benefits, but also then being able to to manage them as, as we are and be responsible to ourselves as humans for how far we're going to take it. And especially within the context of social media, which, you know, arguably is a very powerful tool. And, uh, but on the flip side can be taken too far. You know, Eric, we're already, we're already up to an hour here and I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation and your enthusiasm. I got a couple more questions and then we'll wrap it up. And I think, um, one would be, who would be your biggest inspiration or a mentor you've had to help guide you through your career? You know, I, I would point to uh, my, my doctoral advisors, Kathleen Carley and, and, and Jim Morris. They've been uh, really terrific. You know, even as, as academics, professional academics, they've been breathtakingly insightful, I think, about how to uh, just live one's life. One thing I remember from Jim Morris is 
just in, in human interaction, this may sound kind of funny, is that, you know, don't, don't describe to malfeasance what can be described by incompetence. When I was at a young age, it just helped me not try to take things so personally, and I, I would be more empathetic to people. However, however harsh that statement might sound, that's just an example of the type of funny wisdom that might have come from, from Jim Morris. And, you know, Kathleen Carley, she's a fantastic expression of someone that has a really beautiful brain and applying that to being more creative in the expressions of computer science. When I started in computer science, my class was 98 to 2 about, you know, in the gender imbalance between women and men, you know, and how at least Carnegie Mellon had addressed that and, and now gone a long way towards addressing that is by expanding the different expressions of computer science. So it, there's not just nerds like me in a basement with the graphics cards, but there's now uh, computational biology. There's now human computer interaction. There's now computational sociology. There's now computational linguistics, you know, because what we found out was that, you know, women didn't necessarily find an aversion to computer science. They found there was an aversion to studying how to make graphics chips more efficient for video games. But if you brought it, brought in the application to something that's just other interests, uh, you know, come to find out there's a lot of smart women that find homes furthering uh, that research. And I think, I think uh, Kathleen Carley, uh, one of my advisors, was uh, a testament to that. And Peter Carnegie Mellon, to their credit, has had more or less like a, a 50-50 ratio. I think it's actually more women than men uh, admitted and graduating for about the last decade because of these changes in the computer science curriculum. Wow. That is, that is interesting. It's fascinating. And also, well, thank you for sharing that. And, and it just brought to mind, though, how when we think about the technologies we've used over the last you know, two decades, when at least that's as much as I can remember, they've primarily been built by a certain demographic. And when built by a certain demographic, they're seen, the, 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 the creation of them is seen through a very simple lens, an individual lens, where now broadening the, the areas in which computer science is applied and the study of it and the, the research around it, bringing in more views, bringing in more, I'm not a big fan of the word, I hope this doesn't go too far, but of being inclusive. Like I think it's overused, but the point is, is including more perspectives in the development of software is is awesome. So that's good to hear. You know, I, I, I got a little pitch there for Connexus, which is while while we apply our particular AI to business problems, and as we said, the problems of complex operations, our AI already addresses this issue of being inclusive and unbiased. It really hits on all the beautiful areas of an optimal AI. And the reason it does that is because it is foundationally symbolic and not probabilistic. So it doesn't have to take all the, the garbage from the uh, 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 you know, human, human fallacy, uh, failings and represent those as truth. Right. It, it takes truth and represents it as truth. Yes. That's what Connexus does uh, for these large organizations. You know, maybe sometime in the future we'll find a consumer expression of that technology that enables us to then solve these problems of, of inclusiveness and bias for a broader audience. But the Connexus AI does that today in the domains in which we operate. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, final question is, I'm curious, what kind of things you read? What kind of are you, aside from writing poems for your wife, chat GPT, what kind of media are you into? Well, I, I can first pitch my wife's book. It was on the bestseller list 
last year as a book on corporate culture, reculturing on the business shelf about corporate culture. And I am in the process of writing a book about the vision we have for the future of AI and how people could participate. It's going to be a, a book for a broad audience that describes the, the future trends of formalization. There's a, a trend that people can bring about in a, in a more enriching way, which is that we start with implicit knowledge and we begin to encode it, as we have talked about, in a more formal setting. And then this gets automated so that a machine can read it. And then we start the process all over again. That's how technology works. And that, that for the remainder of our working careers and probably the remainder of our lifetimes, uh, will continue in, in a way that people can help participate in their own automation, we'll say, automating them, their way out of a job and, and re- renewing themselves with better and better quality work that I want to represent in this book. It'll, uh, I expect it to be out next year. The title, the working title is The Future is Formal. Amazing. Eric, it's been a real pleasure. I'm glad we connected. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.